Hello, welcome to episode 18, I think it is, maybe 18, maybe 19, could be episode 19 of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham. I'm sorry there wasn't an episode last week, I don't know if some of you might have been annoyed about that. I I think I said the week before when I released the last episode that I was going back to doing weekly and then... Um, a couple of days after that, I realized that I was going to be doing it fortnightly. And I didn't know how to communicate that to you. I mean, this is my only means of communication to you, whoever you are listening to this right now. Unless you message me. You can always message me. You can follow me. That sounds like I was deliberately segueing into this, but I'm not. You can follow me on Instagram, Louis Garnham. <laughs> um, and you can come to my shows if you're in Melbourne or if you're in Sydney. I'm going to be performing in Sydney soon. If you're in Melbourne... Um, you can head to the Comedy Festival website, put my name in, it'll take you to the show. You can put in the promo code PODCAST in all capital letters. You'll get some discount tickets. I don't know if they work on every night, um, maybe just the quiet weeknights, but, or maybe they work on every night. Look, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea, but you can try. Just give it a go. It's worth a try. <laughs> this is a great episode. If you're still listening to this intro and you haven't skipped ahead to the episode, then Great, because I'm going to tell you about my guest this week. I'm very excited about my guest this week. She's a very smart, very intelligent person who knows a lot about a lot of things, but particularly, and the thing that we spoke most about was COVID. COVID's been quite a big thing in the news lately. You've probably heard of it. Quite a big deal. But also something that, you know, I feel like there's been a lot of information around. I don't know what to believe. don't know what, what's what's real, what's not. I don't know what yeah, I don't know what to think about COVID a lot of the time. She cleared a lot of things up for me. It really enlightened me on a lot of things about infectious diseases in general, about healthcare systems, um, really interesting stuff about the way in which the vaccine is is getting um, distributed, the way in which vaccines have been distributed in the past, the way in which they get created. Uh a really fascinating stuff. My guest this week is Debbie Long. She's a health anthropologist with expertise in medical anthropology, qualitative health research, and hospital ethnography. She's worked um, as senior lecturers and, and research fellows, done PhDs at many universities around Australia and the world. She's co-author on the recent edition of Introducing Medical Anthropology, A Discipline in Action, and her research has been published in Social Science and Medicine, Current Anthropology, American Anthropologist, Health Sociology Review, and the MJA, the Medical Journal of Australia, among many others. Yeah, she's, I mean, that, I think that's a, that's a big enough description. I mean, just from that, you're going, okay, fuck, she's pretty fucking smart then. And she's going to know a lot about COVID and we talk a lot about COVID. Why did COVID happen? How's it been happening? All the stuff surrounding it, all the anthropological shit around this time. Very interesting. I think you'll like it a lot. Um, if you like the episode, let me know, hit me up on, uh, on social media like I mentioned before you know slide into my direct messages as people say and come to my show at the comedy festival um, get involved in Debbie's research you can look up her research online read some of that it's very interesting um, and get involved in the recommendations that she she puts puts down at the end of this podcast they're all listed in the description and they're all fantastic she's provided a, an amazing array of 
of artist recommendations, which I really appreciated, including her son. And I would urge you to watch his film, Blackwood. Um, I usually don't say this at the start of the podcast. I usually wait till the end and you can hear the recommendations then. But I feel like with that one, it's an important thing to say early on. Um, but also at this point, maybe I'm talking too much. Maybe I'm, you know, <laughs> rabbiting on and you just want to listen to the podcast. Before you do that... Um, I would like to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri and the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation and say that sovereignty was never ceded in Australia. It's it's stolen land. And um, yesterday was the fifth black death in custody in a month or a month and a half or, or maybe two months, regardless, a very short period of time the fifth fifth um it's been 30 years since the royal commission into black deaths in custody and it appears as though that royal commission nothing's improved and in fact things have gotten worse and i heard someone on the radio saying the other day um i can't remember who it was this indigenous guy who's saying that you know if you look at the i think there was 150 recommendations he was saying in that royal commission it's like barely barely any of them have been followed like you know what what more could be a representation of governments and people in power's complete lack of care like you know you can't fucking shrug this shit off as like oh the systems are hard bureaucracy's hard it's hard to change things if you haven't made a single effort in 30 years to adhere to any of those recommendations like what the fuck i think there's rallies all around the country this weekend about this topic um that i'm talking about now go to those i think um yes if if you're free get out and go to those rallies and yeah don't accept this fucking bullshit white australia we're such uh makes you angry sometimes um and be angry i think that's probably a good good place to be when there's when there's these black deaths in custody happening when when the dan andrews government is trying to chop down more sacred trees in victoria um you know following the worst bushfires in australia's history and there's you know the 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 forest is so precious at this point and and they're, they're they're continuing to log trees that are sacred totems to the local indigenous people it's just it's just insane anyway good to get that off my chest i suppose i um i hope you enjoy the podcast i think it's a great conversation let me know what you think of it this is episode 19 or 18 i don't know you know whatever it is of can i borrow your mind with lewis garnham that's me and my guest this week debbie long I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Oh, in a fortnight, sorry. I'll see you in a fortnight. Fortnightly episodes from now on. The next one's going to be great. I'll see you then. Goodbye. One of the main reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is because you're very well-placed to talk about COVID and I guess it's been spoken about relentlessly in the media, in politics, in all of society for the whole of the last year. I guess, firstly, do you think that there are any things that have been neglected or misconstrued misconstrued in that discourse that you want to, I don't know, speak about now? 
Um, great question. Thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so when COVID first hit, um, and I think people are using the, the, the thing that completely um, bugged me. Can I say shat me? Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Swearing the is thing encouraged. That really, really gave me the shits. Uh, when people were talking about it being unprecedented, um, some of the things that were absolutely not unprecedented were the fact that we were in the middle of a global pandemic. Pandemic. We've had so many of those before. Um, we've had the bubonic plague. Um, we've had the Spanish flu, which people talk about. Um, we've had polio. Mm. Polio was was you know at epidemic slash pandemic proportions yeah. until we had the vaccine yeah. for it. Um, it didn't necessarily kill people, but it crippled people. But, yeah. And and that was absolutely at pandemic proportions until um, a vaccine was developed for it. Um, we've, the, the thing that has absolutely gobsmacked me that's been lost in a lot of the discourses, um, and this is the, the pandemic that I lived through, was HIV. Yeah. Um, HIV AIDS was enormous and it's in the lifetime of, you know, everybody making decisions um, around COVID because it is generally seen to have impacted um, a particular demographic and because there was stigma and blame attached yeah. uh, because it was a sexually transmitted disease. Yeah. Um, and that, that the, the demographics that get stigmatised in Western countries, it was generally... Uh, men who have sex with men in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it was generally a heterosexual population, so so there was a stigma around sexual activity. Um, but AH, somehow because um, of the stigma of the way in which HIV was transmitted, we we suddenly, we've kind of left it out of our, I think because, you know, you can catch COVID um, just by you know, being on a train or, or you know, yeah, being in the same yeah. room as your grandmother. Yeah. Um, and that thing that it is transmitted in intimate spaces but not through um, yeah, sexually intimate yeah, yeah. activity means that we're somehow seeing it as quite a different thing. Whereas the analogies with COVID and HIV, are, there's, so, there's so many parallels, so many incredible parallels, um, including the behaviour change. You know, um, including totally. the way discourses were shifted. Yeah. Now, when I first became sexually active, having safe sex meant that you weren't falling pregnant. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and, and that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. That's, you know, the idea of safe sex being sex that doesn't transmit a disease was something that was very foreign to me when I was first sexually active. Yeah. That's something that changed in. Um, in everybody's sexual behaviour. Through HIV. Through HIV yeah. um, and through our awareness of it. Um, yeah. And so that idea that, that what we're dealing with now with COVID is something that health professionals haven't already dealt with has just been bizarre. Yeah. Um, Anthony Fauci, who's just been, you know, I, I, I don't know how he's done what he's done in the States in, in the face. You know, I don't know how he's hung in there with Trump. Um he he became America's chief um, infectious diseases person because of his work in the HIV epidemic. Wow. Um, and he was a, a very straight, very medical person. Um, and people in the queer community, as, as um, it was sort of self-identified then, um, 
were being incredibly stigmatised and very much left out of mm. decision making around the um, the sort of research and development, uh, sort of the research of, of treatments into HIV. And there was a lot of activism um, that happened from the gay community um, in the States and in Australia. Um, and Fauci listened to them. He was, the, you know, he was a, a really prominent medical person who said, "Hey, we we have to actually listen to what would now be called the consumers." Yeah, then, then yeah. It was patients. Yeah. Um, but the neoliberal shift in language, you know, to 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 have somebody who's visiting a doctor because they're the sick one be called a consumer. If somebody had said that to me when it's I was twenty five, that that's what we'd be saying. I would have gone, "Yeah, get out of here!" <laughs> yeah, you know? it's insane. It's the the shift in language that happened in the eighties and nineties has been extraordinary. Yeah, um, it's like calling McDonald's a restaurant. You totally. Know, when, yeah, when they yeah, first, yeah. When McDonald's first started saying, "Come into our restaurants," it's like you're not a fucking restaurant. <laughs> you're a fast food takeaway place. <laughs> and yet now that that languaging has become really ordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, so, so so Fauci developed his stripes for dealing with a pandemic with HIV AIDS, and that's been somehow sort of left out of yeah. um, of the narrative of COVID. And I find that troubling because it means that there's lessons, there's so many lessons that we have learned from so many um, infectious disease incidences over the years. And we run the risk of, of having to reinvent the wheel and relearn some things. Yeah. Having said that, um, there's aspects to that. So Australia's response has been extraordinary. Um, and there's been extraordinary responses in many places yeah. around the world. And those responses have been there because of lessons learned. So Taiwan, you know, got yeah. in there yeah. and, and were amazing because of what they learned from SARS. Yeah. Um, Australia's effectiveness of our public health system and particularly our infectious disease um, response is is built on the back of our successful HIV wow. response. We were one of the most successful countries in cha- getting behaviour change to happen yeah. um, with with HIV. See, even that, I didn't even know that, like that we did really well in terms of that mm. like that's yeah yep. that's something i should know and the fact that that's led to us having a good response to this like we, no we, one's mentioned that at all no no and we have the structures in place um we have a we we have such globally australia's public health system is recognized as being one of the best our messaging is recognized as being yeah. one of the best we're very very good yeah. at um getting out and going okay so What's the behaviour that's putting people at risk? Um, what will motivate people to change? Um, we're very good at recognising carrot and stick. I mean, the Grim Reaper ads you yeah. know, have copped a lot of flack for how traumatised they've left people. Yeah. Um, and, and they have certainly had you know, a, an incredible impact on the experience of sex for gay men who didn't grow up in that. Yeah, it, it, yeah, Not yeah. to mention... Um, men in the the gay community who, um, who who've sort of you know had this this thing of of HIV hanging over them as a death sentence, um, and the Grim Reaper's certainly um, responsible for a lot of emotional and psychological distress. Yeah. 
and it saved lives. Yeah. You know, both things are true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the if you think about the lockdown in Victoria um, and maybe the Victorian response versus the New South Wales response, they're things that where, you know, the discussions will go on for years. There'll be multiple PhD theses written about you know, was the emotional distress, was the yeah. psychological trauma for single people, you know, not being able to touch anybody for months yeah. on end, yeah. Yeah. was that worth what we achieved in Victoria? Yeah. You know, did the New South Wales response get it better? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the same thing. Both things are true. Mental health suffered, but there were way less deaths than... Yeah. Yeah, there could have been. than there would have been if we didn't yeah. do that. And those kind of balances are the things that um, it, it's really tricky stuff when you're doing infection control and public health. Yeah, and we we seem to be able to embrace the complexity of that. So it, 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 one of the things that continually surprises me about Australia is that we're so bogan and buffy and reductionist you know we 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 do simplify things in a whole lot of ways and yet we do some really complex stuff really well mm. and we do it fairly straightforwardly um and i think yeah i you know i think that's sort of been one of the really interesting things around around covid i think it's crazy that like throughout that big lockdown that melbourne had I was upset that I was in lockdown, but I was so grateful that I wasn't living in a country where, like, this is what amazes me about capitalism, where it was just like, no, nah, just keep going to work and people just sending out, getting sent out to die, basically, like yeah. in America. Like, I just couldn't believe, thought that if anything was ever going to, like, bring the economy to a standstill, it would be human lives mm, just mm, being lost mm. but even that didn't yeah. stop it yeah. <laughs> well, that crazy america's just hit half a million deaths like, with fuck. covid like what the hell <laughs> and, and that's the price that they're prepared to pay yeah that's what it's for, worth for not having somebody tell them what to do um it's just, you know I, I see an analogy with the gun laws there yeah that, that, yeah that um, as a society, America is prepared to tolerate a really large number of deaths so that people can, you know, have their own sort of buffy phallic symbols to carry yeah, around Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But there is a cultural logic behind it. There's a yeah. cultural consistency with... Um, you know, America having a tolerance to to such a high death rate, yeah. Um, particularly under Trump, um, it's it will be really interesting to see um, what sort of what the response to you know Biden's coming in with a very very different approach, um, and it will be really interesting to see if he's sort of over the longer term seen as a saviour or seen as somebody who interfered with, you know, natural selection yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that is unprecedented about COVID is the response of the pharmaceutical industry. 
And it's just been extraordinary how quickly we've gone from identification of the disease to an effective vaccine. Um, and we're sitting here um, recording this in, you know, as the vaccine is just mm. being ro- starting to be rolled out in Australia. Um, so by the time people are listening to this, you know, we'll probably yeah. have even more data. The rollout of the vaccine has been extraordinarily quick. Um, with previous um, previous new infections, new diseases, there's there's quite a long lead time. And, and all the way through COVID, people were saying, you know, don't expect the vaccines to, to come quickly. Um, you know, it, it, it might be two or three years or yeah, more, yeah. all that sort of thing. Within medical circles, there were really high levels of confidence that there'd be a vaccine within 12 to 18 months. Um, and I was predicting that really early just because I was listening to people who were saying that. Um, and I was getting really poo-pooed by a lot of colleagues and a lot of I work in a lot of multidisciplinary areas and um, in, in particularly in um, the development studies field where I'm sort of the health person in the room with a lot of other specialists sometimes. Um, and there was a lot of cynicism um, and a lot of scepticism about mm. um, when I, I was sort of saying, no, a, a vaccine will be here fairly quickly. And I think if people were reading mainstream media, it, the the voices that were coming out were very much no, it's going to take a long time. Within the medical literature and and the medical discussion sort of forums, there were a whole lot of things that were quite different about what was happening in um, vaccine research and development that hadn't happened before. So that's where there were some unprecedented things. Yeah. Why the fuck doesn't the media just regurgitate the stuff that's being said in the medical... I don't know. That's so stupid. I really don't know, because this was all... <laughs> like, surely they've got the best information. Put that on the news. And it was interesting in Australia because for so many other things, we followed the medical advice really well, mm. and the media did, um, you know, listened to our chief medical officer. Um, but in this particular case, they weren't. And part of that may have been the... The messaging, the messaging from government medical officers was probably fairly conservative about vaccine development, because it, it's, I would imagine that the thinking there would have been it's better to be conservative to be, and have it come earlier than true. say, hey, we're all going to be okay in eighteen yeah. months' time, yeah. and then there be delays because yep. there were so many things that could have, yep. you know, that makes sense. Like customers, uh, if you order food to be delivered that you're always going to be happier if it if it's five minutes earlier than five estimate. minutes later yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely the so so how we got to um the state we're at now where you know theoretically um we could be flying internationally again in six months time i mean that could be happening before the end of the year and i wow. would unless Something really big gets in the way. I suspect that um, that borders will be pretty much open uh, before next Christmas, wow. which is not something that a lot of us would have necessarily mm. thought this Christmas just mm. gone. Um, and so a couple of things happened. We had the technology around coronaviruses in general from 
the 2003 SARS outbreak. So there was a lot of research put into um, the 2003 SARS uh, sort of development of something. It That vaccine development stopped because we got on top of SARS, um, but that knowledge was still there. We, we, um, we hadn't yet developed an effective vaccine for a corona-type virus, but we were a long way along the track. We, yeah. we knew how they operated. We knew how they worked. So there was a lot of knowledge there. Um, what happened when uh, COVID-19 was identified and when the pharmaceutical industry started working on it was that they simultaneously worked on a number of different technologies. So it was like attacking it on a number mm. of different fronts. I hate to use a military metaphor. Um, but they strategically chose um, to develop a number of different technologies. Some of them have turned out not to work. Two of them have turned out to be very, very effective. Yeah. Um, so, so there was that thing of throwing all sorts of different things at it without being able to predict which one was going to come out, but knowing that one of them, one or more of them probably would. Yeah. The other thing that started happening is as particular types of vaccine technologies were showing themselves to be effective in the early phases, the pharmaceutical companies, and I don't know the background behind this. I'd, I'd love to know how this, what discussions were had and, and how these decisions were made. Um, because they certainly weren't made on a, a, a financial profit and loss basis. Mm. But decisions were made to start producing the component parts that would be necessary for a number of different vaccines well before the vaccine's efficacy was approved. Wow. Was proven. So essentially losing a lot of money. Potentially, yeah. Right. yeah. And, and two or three of the vaccine technologies, to my knowledge, there are stockpiles of components that won't be used and will probably go out of date and will have cost somebody, um, some company or some government or some person, possibly Bill Gates personally himself, he may well have, you know, bankrolled this. I, I don't know. Yeah. But somebody has, has said, if we are going to get this out quickly, that one of the, the, the delays in um, the vaccine sort of pipeline in, in the rolling out, so there's there's various sort of potential delays in the pipeline. The clinical testing phase is the one that, you know, was covered in the media, that, mm. that trials take, you know, they take time yeah. to get the results on. And you you can't start rolling out a vaccine in any kind of massive numbers until you know it's safe. Yeah. Um, you can start rolling it out before you know it's effective, as long as it's not going to hurt people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, you, you, well, we don't roll out vaccines until we know that they're not going to kill more people than they're going yeah. to save. Um, so there's there's a certain part of the clinical trials process that just can't be hurried. Um, one of the other places where the vaccine pipeline um, would slow down was once you get through clinical trials, once you get a, a particular vaccine approved, you then have to ramp up the production of the components and ramp up the production for the vaccine. And... What happened um, was that those components all ready to go. were all ready to go the minute something was, was cleared. Wow. So that's that took six months off the normal mm. vaccine rollout time. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's very well known. It's not, you know, particularly hidden anywhere. Um, but I, I – and I, I don't know. I, I haven't been able to find who, who pushed lost. that decision. Yeah. 
Well, also who how how they made that decision because that decision was made as almost um, it was made very very early on. Um, I can remember talking about this probably March of last year. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not something that that came about slowly. It's not something that seemed to happen after really lengthy negotiations. It was there really quickly, and it was there globally really quickly. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, that's unprecedented yeah. to have pharmaceutical companies doing something that would put them at financial risk. Pharmaceutical companies sharing data. Um, so all of the data on all of the trials um, for all of the vaccines that are being rolled out at the moment, they have been up on databases that have been, um, if not publicly available, very, very available to other researchers. Mm. So normally R&D, sort of the research and development that, that pharmaceutical companies do is very, very closely guarded IP, intellectual property. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's not made available to competitors. What happened with coronavirus um, research or, or vaccine research, well, both research into the virus and then research into the vaccines um, and research into treatments that were effective in, in um, sort of minimising the impact of, of COVID. All of that information was available on um, really accessible databases to researchers everywhere. There's, I've, I can't remember anything that's had the level of international collaboration wow. that we've had with the coronavirus. In terms of hopes for the future, if we decided to do that with the with climate challenges, yeah. we've, we've shown what we can do yeah. as an international scientific community. What's happened with the development of this vaccine has been absolutely extraordinary, and that's been unprecedented. Yeah. And that gives us a model that we could hopefully use for solving other global problems down the down the line. Yeah, that I mean, yeah, that's that's really um, optimistic as well. I guess two things, um, just to be cynical or whatever. Do you think that maybe they? I'm just trying to figure out why they would not put profit first um but is it maybe because like if the longer covid goes the longer the economy could potentially shut down and i don't know is there like could there be a profit motive but just a few steps away from that does that make sense um yeah when you started off there i was thinking oh lewis is overthinking this but um <laughs> but no you you got me back at the end look that that's that is um, absolutely fundamental public health thinking that if you've got an unhealthy population, it's going to cost yeah. economically. Yeah. So okay. the idea of the, the simplistic thing of it's, you know, either econ of, of pitting health against the economy mm. is very simplistic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's thinking that is, is very ordinary. Um, the more complex sort of public health thinking is that health and economy are going to be linked and if you solve the health problems it's better for the economy um, that's certainly written into things like um, the United Nations SDGs the sustainable development goals make very clear statements about health and economy being linked and you can't have 
proper economies without investment in health systems. So certainly in some places that understanding is seeping through. Um, It hasn't been something that's been um, particularly prevalent in many of our responses and to you know to things like climate issues to um, um, certainly to other sort of health issues um, I'm trying to think yes yeah, sorry there's a really logical example here um, if you think about preventative health if you think about the sort of you know education around lifestyle and exercise mm. uh, if you think about the things that we could be doing in Australia to improve our health around you know limiting sales of, of soft drinks around not having not having fucking maccas in hospital <laughs> food areas I mean that one just drives me insane yeah. in, you know every children's hospital in the country seems to have a McDonald's in it mm-hmm. which is just yeah, again, I'll use the word obscene on that one. Yeah, if definitely. we started getting more sensible um, around preventative health measures, then the cost to our health system, the, 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 the benefits, the cost benefits to our health system would just be enormous. Yeah. Um, we spend 96% of our health budget on responsive health care and 4% of wow. our health budget on preventative care. Wow. Wow, there's probably a good parallel between that and the criminal justice system and absolutely. policing. Absolutely, yeah. yep. That's really interesting. Yep. That that's that that logic is the logic of the justice reinvestment paradigm. Yeah, um, and it's about you know working on preventative strategies yeah. rather than strategies responding to things once they've happened. Yeah. Um, and and we know that preventative care health, uh, preventative health care works. Um, we know that it improves um, both people's quality of life um, and the cost of the health system. Yeah. But it's long term investment versus short term investment, and we have short term political cycles. Yes. Yeah. And so is that what you would put the whole reason? down to for why it is the way it is um i think short-term political cycles have a lot to do with it yeah absolutely yeah um and i you know i, I, I neoliberal is run on vested commercial interests mm. that aren't that interested in having you know a healthy just equitable society yeah so it's not necessarily the priority yeah. of people who are influencing resource decisions yeah yeah that makes sense do you there's there's something else on that as well yeah that's without blaming rupert murdoch and kerry packer for everything um (laughs) as as and john howard of course um as tempting as that is the other thing is our fascination with machines that go ping over our preparedness to eat spinach you know like if if we want to look after a ourselves and our health there's some just really basic boring shit we've got to do you know get ourselves out for some exercise every day um you know knock back the you know the fifth and and 20th beer yeah yeah yeah, um eat leafy greens every day you know there's, there's a whole lot of stuff about um being healthy and and it i i don't want to sort of um shift 
shift the focus onto individual behaviour um, because I think there's a whole lot of structural and systemic issues around here as well. But there is also the thing that going off and getting an MRI and getting into a fancy machine that goes ping yeah. is somehow sexier than eating a spinach and going for a walk. Basic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, that you know, there, there's a... Yeah, there, there's a way in which if we all chose to be healthier, yeah, we could do it. Yeah, but there's a whole lot of things that take us away from that path. That feels very Australian to me. That the idea of the the fancy machine being more exciting than just eating the spinach. I don't yeah, know, it just feels very yeah. I like, yeah yeah. I look. I think there's there's cultural side to it, but I think it'd be the same in many. Yeah, places yeah. as well, but there would be there's absolutely other places where that's much less attractive. Yeah. I, I lived in the Netherlands um, in the late eighties and nineteen nineties. Lived there for six and a half years, and I would imagine that that's quite different to Dutch culture. Dutch, Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, there's yeah, there's something in in sort of the Dutch culture that that finds just the ordinary, everyday, normal. Um, what we would call self-care comes much more readily. It's just part of the... It's just part yeah, of what you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it doesn't really feel like that's a part of Australia that much, just the the basic... No, I think we're, we're quite good at getting outdoors. Yeah, um, that's true. I think in terms of exercise we could all be doing a little bit more probably but we are quite good at being able to have a, a healthy outdoors life yeah um yeah it, it's uh, there's lots of factors in there yeah, yeah yeah um i've read i've read stuff about i read this opinion by naomi klein about Sort of, a, she was sort of focusing on Bill Gates and the work that he's done, but she was talking about like Oprah and a few other people, and and she was sort of saying that the idea of the philanthropic billionaire, the really rich person that that is going to help everyone, is a dangerous idea because it pulls away from what we really need to be thinking about, and it and it's just it's it's not healthy to hold people up as saviors just because they've got a lot of money and they're spending some of that money on helping the world um but in relation to covid like maybe when a crisis hits i don't know maybe you do need someone with a lot of cash to just quickly do something about it uh yeah what what, what do you think about um that? I, I agree with Klein on that one. I agree with Naomi Klein. Um, I think the danger of, of rich saviours as a trope and as a narrative mm. is a really problematic one. Um, the reason we've got these rich philanthropic sort of potential saviours is because we have such inequity of resource distribution. You know, Oprah's great. Um, I think she's absolutely awesome. I want her to live in a very comfortable house. I want her to have everything that she needs to have a comfortable life because she has more than earned it. However, I, and I, I don't know how many billions she's got at the moment, I don't think anybody should have the amount of billions yeah. that she has 
or the Queen of England has, yeah. or that Bill Gates has. That's an inequitable distribution of resources. Um, I don't begrudge very smart, very talented people who, you know, put sort of chasing money as a priority in their life. I don't begrudge them having a materially comfortable life. I don't think that the system that we have where people like they'd end up as multi-billionaires and other people who don't have those priorities end up sleeping on the streets mm. and dying, you know, at 35 mm. of hypothermia in Australia. Um, I don't think that system is a healthy system. Yeah. Um, because we have that system, um, having Bill Gates and the Garvey Alliance come in um, and provide a lot of the solutions for COVID has been fantastic. Mm. Um I can certainly imagine a world where resource distribution was different and that wasn't what was needed to do it. Right, right. Um, however, COVID happened in, you know, the, the sort of the, the 21st century neoliberal um, global environment. And in that environment, um, I think what the Gateses have been able to achieve has been quite extraordinary. And I was very, very critical of, of that. Criticals. I, I was very uncomfortable about Gates's argument, about Bill Gates's argument. So the Gates Foundation, I, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Melinda Gates. Um, and possibly that's because I don't know enough about her. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm a cynic enough to go. Yeah. I might be being sucked in by the rhetoric. Um, but what I've seen of her, she's a bit of a Michelle Obama figure in the, you know, the, the very, very powerful, compassionate, amazing human being who happens to have been the partner of somebody yeah. that's allowed them to have a platform to actually do some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, when Bill Gates first started um, getting into vaccine development and when he founded the Garvey Alliance, um, which is the Global Global Alliance for Vaccines, which has had a few different iterations over the years and it's run into um, a few different sort of public relations issues. Um, but when Gates first started getting into that, I, I had a lot of suspicion about it. It, it, it didn't feel right that um, it, it, it didn't feel right that a rich, nerdy, white American was going to come in and save sub-Saharan Africa from malaria. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it, yeah, it just that, yeah, it, it just weird. felt like, yeah, no, that's that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, having said that, what he's achieved is is really quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, I would love it if his foundation put a little bit more focus on health systems, on syndemics, on qualitative research. Um, the the focus of where the money goes is very much in high-tech solutions. Um, I think they're learning a few lessons around the need to have behavioural information and, and behavioural knowledge there, but they're still... The, the, the focus of the research, I think, is still skewed in a direction that um, is not as optimal as it could be. Having said that, they've achieved an enormous amount. Yeah. And almost one of the most important things that Gates... And I, th I, I think it's Gates 
that has done this. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know the background about this and I don't know who knows the background about this. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happened behind closed doors. But whatever it was that brought the pharmaceutical industry together to work the way they've worked with COVID, um, and Gates is certainly getting the credit for it. Right. Um, but nobody really knows how yeah, it's kind of happened. Yeah. Um, but the the fact that that has happened is extraordinary. And so it's you know it's one of those things of of if we didn't have a neoliberal world we wouldn't need yeah. bill gates but in a neoliberal world in in my imagination at the moment he's one of the boys with the white hats you know he's one of the good guys yeah. Yeah. um and yeah I guess that's yeah. where I'm sitting on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, mean, I, I very... feel like I'm not fully informed with it. I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on that that um, that maybe we'll find out about in retrospect. Maybe we won't. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great analysis of him. And I suppose that's sort of changed my view on him because I've had... I've had lots of conversations where I've tried to convince people that he's a dickhead <laughs> just because he's a billionaire. Um, and another thing, yeah, another thing that I would really love to have your opinion on is the pharmaceutical industry, I guess, pre and post COVID. I'd like to know your stance on them and how they operate because it's something I don't know much about at all and, that I would love to know more about. Okay, so there's a really interesting um, segue with this from the the, the Gates story as well, uh, because there's another aspect to why the global community has responded the way it has to COVID. Um, and this is the part of the story that's... Um, that gets less attention than Gates, and it's to do with the World Health Organization and how we go about responding to diseases that cross borders. So, an epidemic that becomes a pandemic because it crosses a um, crosses a border. Um, so, the um, the sort of recent. Um, in recent times, we've had a number of diseases that have threatened to get out of hand prior to COVID. In 1997, there was the bird flu, the H1N5 flu. Um, 2003, there was SARS. 2009, there was the swine flu. 2013, there was a um, what was called then the, the novel avian flu, so another type of bird mm -hmm. flu um, that was sort of brought into control fairly, uh, fairly quickly. Um, so there's another aspect to um, the response of, of the global community uh, to COVID that um, has had probably a little bit less attention than, um, than Gates and, and the Garvey Alliance. Um, and that's something that happened back in 2006 with uh, the outbreak of bird flu in Indonesia. So in 2003, there was an outbreak of SARS and the World Health Organization collected samples of SARS, um, as they had done with prior bird flu outbreaks, from um, all of the different countries that, that had 
SARS appearing. Um, and all of the countries around the world, to my knowledge, um, and certainly record the way it's been recorded, is that everybody was incredibly compliant when the WHO said, you know, we want samples of the virus so that we can send it off to the pharmaceutical companies to develop vaccines for it. Mm. Everyone went, yeah, great, fantastic, global cooperation. What happened with development of early um, bird flu vaccines, and I think it was also in the SARS vaccine early development, Indonesia had sent off samples um, and then... Uh, early versions of the vaccine and the flu vaccines weren't made available at um, a price that, that people mm. could afford or that the, the Indonesian government could afford. So there were vaccines that were developed that were made available to wealthier countries um, for flu vaccines. So the, the, the bird flu and swine flu are both forms of influenza A and influenza A mutates very, very quickly. So that's why we need, or why, people sort of say you need a flu jab every right, year right, right, is because yeah. influenza A mutates incredibly quickly. Yeah. Um, there's a process called antigenic um, shift that happens with influenza A that is uh, happens on top of the normal process of a thing called antigenic drift that influenza B, coronavirus, all sort of all diseases mutate slowly. Mm. And then influenza A does something that also means it mutates very quickly. Um, so to keep on top of um, vaccines for type A influenzas, samples of the, the newest versions and the, the latest mutations are, are needed and they needed to be sent through very quickly. Um, so what had happened is that Indonesia had sent off samples. They hadn't got the resulting mm. technology made accessible to them. Um, when they had a, a significant outbreak of um, the H5N1 bird flu in 2006, WHO said, great, you've got this, send us your samples. Indonesia said, nah. And WHO <laughs> went, what the fuck? And they went, nah, you've, we've been sending you this stuff and you've been using it to help other people and we haven't been receiving anything yeah. for it. Um, and we can't afford to pay the prices that, you know, you're, you're um, collecting these, you're the World Health Organization, you should be providing it to everybody, you're sending it to pharmaceutical companies and they're making and a they're profit making out, money of it. out of it. Which is and such a bizarre thing, yeah. I reckon. Like, it's such a weird way. Well, that's that it wrong. Like that. It's yeah. just unethical. Yeah. It's just basically unethical. And the the pharmaceutical companies and the World Health Organization just jumped up and down like, <laughs> you know, rabid <laughs> bloody dogs. Um, I don't know if that's a politically correct <laughs> analogy or not, but but they were they were cranky as all shit with Indonesia. Yeah. And they gave them heaps. They 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 played some appalling public relations games. They you know, they used all sorts of awful stereotypes of, you know, about ignorant brown people mm. and all sorts of things like that. And Indonesia just stood really firm. It just went, nah, you know, what you're doing is absolutely unreasonable and absolutely unfair. So and great. if you want you know, our little bits of, of body samples, then you've got to look after our bodies as well. Yeah. And it it culminated. It, it was a standoff for, for a few months, um, but it culminated in, in the WHO blinking and going, yeah, all right, okay, yes, we should really be fair and equitable about vaccine distribution. 
And that was one of the first rejigs around the Garvey Alliance. So there was stuff that happened there that, that shifted um, some of the ways in which the vaccine alliances were working. Um, Interesting. And there's a, there's a whole lot of different um, international agreements that cover equity in medical resources. So things like the Doha Agreement and things like that. Um, and and the, it, it's been an, a, a long ongoing conversation between sort of the, the richer industrialised countries and the poorer countries. Mm. Um, but this was one particular, uh, very, very, very effective um, sort of moment of action from Indonesia. And what happened after that was that, that particular agreements were put in place, international agreements were put in place that talked about equity wow. and accessibility for vaccine delivery. If that hadn't have been put into place, we wouldn't be getting the type of delivery we're getting with COVID at the moment. Um, I don't know how effective it's going to be. I don't know how effective it's going to be in delivering the quantities of COVID vaccine that will be needed for sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly where we're more equitable and, and there's more of a focus on equitability around global vaccine distribution than there would have been without that action from the Indonesian government. That's amazing. What a yeah, that's such a that's such a cool thing that they did and that's just so cool that that has had an effect. So so because of that we're more we're better placed for this vaccine to be distributed fairly and justly, do you think that it will be? Um, I mean, I guess it's already being rolled out. Is it is it fair the way it's being distributed? What, what um, do you think? I think the what we're seeing at the moment is within. So let's talk about Western industrialized countries first. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening in? I think the Europe. Uh, the the UK, Europe, um, Australia, New Zealand, the priorities that are being set for vaccine rollout seem to be based on vulnerability and need um, and on good public health policy and on social justice and equity guidelines and, and bases. Um, it's looking at... at the way it's being done, it's you know it's looking like it's ticking all the boxes at the moment. Wow. Um, the states is looking a little bit different. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, yeah, <laughs> and part of it is that it's you know vaccine rollout in America in the United States of America isn't one vaccine rollout, it's 50 vaccine rollouts mm. because it's handled by the states. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think in some states it's it's going it's, very well. In I'll other be, states yeah. it's um, it's going on a, you know, more of a user pays or more of a privilege wow. um, situation. I don't, they, there hasn't been, because it's, because they were so late getting into it and because it's only just started, there's not an awful lot of information um, that's coming back. And, and one of the other things too is that the, in um, the United States is the only industrialised country that has really poor health reporting. So it's if you look at that, there's 
the United States spends um, the second most amount of money per head of population um, on health, but the distribution is really skewed. Mm. So, you know, the the, the top one percent of the population well, I think the top ten percent of the population get more than fifty percent of the health funding Whoa. in the states. It, it's really I'll I'll shoot That's you the graph crazy. so that you can put it up um, in in the links. It it is absolutely insane. Amazing. And that um, would be so racial as well. It's it's racial, it's class, mm. it's um it's all sorts of different things. Yeah. Um yeah. All of the intersections of wealth. Yeah, you, you can yeah. sort of see that in the, the health funding distribution. And the states have, in comparison to other wealthier industrialised countries, the states have really poor health reporting systems. And so there's lots of things that are claimed, but they don't actually have the databases and make them available right. in the same way that, sort of health system data in New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada, in the UK, in European countries, in Japan, in Taiwan, um, in, in um, Vietnam. You, you've got really effective health systems and you've got data that's really sort of well recorded um, and readily available. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit hard to tell. It, it could actually be going better in some places in the States than we'd anticipate, but we don't actually know. Mm. Um, but certainly in, in places that have really effective health systems, the, the vaccine rollout is going incredibly well. In um, more impoverished countries... There's been much less reporting about it. Um, there's, it, it's less likely to be going um, effectively just because of health system challenges and, and not having the resources in yeah. the health systems. Um, having said that, there's some really incredible... Um, there's some incredible mobilisations that have happened in public health initiatives in some very impoverished countries in the past. Um, Bangladesh is is, an, is amazing. It, it's so incredibly poor. Um, and yet it has some of the best public health initiatives because there's this fabulous system of information going out from village to village and health um, health workers travelling around from village to village and taking information out. There's wow. a very trusted system of health support workers that work very much on the ground and face-to-face -face in Bangladesh. Um, and so it may well be that, you know, that, that network is mobilised um, and that that works very well in the case of vaccination. It may well be that the lack of refrigeration and, and lack of other mm. resources... Uh, make it problematic, yeah. um, and that's so. You know, there's 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 things around. Um, there's there's so many different factors that can make something work well and get in the way of it working well. Yeah. The initial um, the initial reports that I'm seeing coming out of sub-Saharan Africa is that vaccine rollout is probably going to be um, much slower there than in wealthier countries. And that's going to be about effectiveness of health system mm -hmm. um, and the fact that, you know, sub-Saharan 
sub-Saharan African countries have been resource stripped by Western countries and by um, members of their own governments in, in yeah. some cases uh, who have been facilitated by Western um, yeah. countries to sort of strip resources. Uh, so many of those countries don't have the the um, sort of the health systems that are able to deliver vaccines at the same level that some of the wealthier, more industrialised countries. That's just bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, it's just so unfair. Yeah, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yep. it's. I mean, but like, this is sort of maybe a weird thing to say or an off thing to say, but it is COVID is good at showing how unjust the world is. You know? Oh yeah, it is good at yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a big question. I'm conscious of time. We're running out of time, but I have a big question. Okay. Um, and it's basically why did COVID happen? Obviously, China have been blamed. Pretty widely. Um, I've heard a lot about this guy eating a bat. <laughs> but I don't know. Is that is that definitely what happened? Why did COVID occur? Okay. So this is a really big question. Mm. Um, so COVID is one of what we call zo- – it's a zoonotic disease. Um, so zoonotic diseases, um, zoozoology um, – Zoonotic diseases are diseases that cross boundaries from species to species. Mm. So normally with a disease, with an infectious disease, it will infect one particular species but not others. Some diseases cross the species barrier. Um, so we've got bird flu, we've got swine flu, we've got SARS, um, and now we have COVID. So COVID, um, in terms of why did COVID happen, it is one of a cluster of diseases um, that, has been through a number of different species organisms and it manifests in different species in different ways and it can cross over the species barrier. Now, the ways in which diseases can cross the species barrier, it can um, a disease can get from one species to another um, because we eat it. So um, a, a, a bat could eat an insect um, that has a disease yep. and yeah. the disease can cross into the bat from there. Um, the bat might then bite a human being or we might a human being might eat the bat. Um, the uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, um, mad cow disease, yeah. uh, which was around in the 90s, um, that we think that that crossed into cows and then back into humans um, by cows being fed ground up, um, I think it was pigs, some other ground up animal um, to make them fatter. Oh, um, so and cows are supposed to be eating animal yeah. protein, they're herbivores. Um, but with industrial farming, uh, we do all sorts of stupid shit with yeah. our food supply. Um and a lot of the stupid shit that we do with our food supply results in increased zoonotic diseases. So um, while diseases have always crossed species barrier, barriers to some extent, that's biology, it's the way they work, um, the way in which we produce our food at the moment leads to the, the heavy sort of industrialisation of food production leads to more opportunities for zoonotic diseases to occur. That makes sense. Now, there's a lot of... Um, one of the other ways in which zoonotic diseases are on the increase is um, 
in terms of threatened habitat. So the more we uh, destroy habitat, the more some species come into contact with human beings in a way that they haven't in the past and haven't traditionally. Um, And that leads to the types of contacts between species that can lead to uh, transfer of diseases over the species barrier. Um, Now, one of the interesting things with with COVID-19 is that um, China is copying a whole of the blame. It's seen as, a, you know, it, it, it first came up in, in uh, Wuhan. Now, it was first identified in Wuhan. That doesn't mean that that's where it first originated. Mm. There have been traces of COVID-19 um, found in biological samples of people who have died in Spain and France. Um, as far back as mid-2019, before it was identified in China. Um, So we know that it was first identified in Wuhan. We know that it first started really spreading um, rampantly. So there might have been a mutation that made it more infectious, um, possibly. But it, it has been around outside of China before it was first identified there. Wow. And that's one of the things that, and, and again, that knowledge has been around. That's, you know, you, you can search that up on the internet. Yeah. Um, that's not something that's been hidden. Yeah. It is something that has been played down. Yeah, um, totally. The Western world is Big very, time. very comfortable Big with time. pointing the finger at China. And look, again, this is this is something that's fairly ordinary human behaviour. Um, the, the the disease that we call German measles in Australia, um, I caught German measles in Germany where it was called Italian measles. <laughs> that's so very funny. That thing of pointing the finger as totally. other people are dirty and, are di- and diseased and yeah. not us. Yeah. That's something we've been doing for centuries. Yeah. I, I, I want to mention... <laughs> Sorry. What you were saying there just reminded me. Um, I was going to mention this at the start when, when we were talking right at the start. Something that you said reminded me of this. But I spoke to on this podcast. I spoke to a um, a sociologist, an academic called Andrew Gilbert, and he has done work into this thing called the crisis paradigm. And it was inter- just even then what you were saying about the way that. It's been downplayed. Um, Yeah, he was basically on this podcast talking about COVID and about the crisis paradigm and about how when things become called a crisis, what that really means is we're going to look at this and different people are going to have a competition of ideas about why it started, what needs to change, what, et cetera, et cetera. And it's sort of like this field of politics where people argue and it feels like the China thing is a bit like that. And, and, and the, the person that, or the people, the group that wins that argument, then that becomes how the crisis is sort of known for the rest of time, sort of in, in a way. And I just feel like what he was saying, if anyone has listened to that episode of the podcast, it ties in so well to that about China. It's really interesting. So that, that speaks a lot to what's called the politics of representation, mm. that you, you have competing discourses and you have contest, 
foundations around discourses. Um, we've when I was talking about the Indonesian example, yeah, they're, they're, the politics of representation was you know absolutely um, on fire then because yeah. Indonesia um, pushed to paint themselves as being morally right. Um, the World Health, Health Organization being outraged that Indonesia, you know, was being a poor global citizen and not sharing their samples. Yeah. That was a classic example of a kind of a, a politics of representation. Totally. And Indonesia ended up winning that one in terms of um, getting a result from the WHO. In many ways, the international community... Um, dominated by Western industrialised societies, won the how that's written in history because it's been completely muted and silenced. Mm. Um, you know, that, that should so be a story that's totally. part of our public health history. Yeah. We should know about that. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't. Yeah. And so that, I think that there's so many examples in infectious diseases that absolutely support that. And and the thing of finger-pointing and blame, you know, like it, it's in a crisis, in a disaster, um, people are opportunistic mm. and sometimes they're opportunistic. And people talk about the opportunities that come from crisis. So I've got a colleague, Chris Dukes, who's, who's um, talking about the opportunities that can come from COVID to reset the world. And I think you were talking about that at, at, at yeah. the beginning. So, you know, does this give us an opportunity um, to actually go, we can do things differently? Mm. So there's certainly opportunities that come out of crises. And there's also an incredible amount of opportunistic behaviour that happens yeah. in the middle of crises. Yeah. You know, if, if, yeah. if sort of a town's burning and people go in and, and start looting, you know, that's that sort of... That's something that it's one of the aspects of disasters and crises that um, are there in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess whether it is a whether it is a tipping point or not, like we were saying, and like your colleague Chris Dukes is sort of investigating, moving forward, I wonder how how you think we can build a better society that's less vulnerable to pandemics if you know if if it's being caused by the things that you were talking about before yeah how how do you avoid that in future in such a globalized and industrialized world where we are encroaching on more and more habitat yeah by the day great question great mm -hmm. question and it's one of those um questions that that sort of points to, you know, the interconnectedness of everything. Um, if we're going to make a world that is less vulnerable to pandemics, the things that will help um, us help help us walk back from the climate crisis, things that will help us make societies that are more equitable and just, will also keep us safer from pandemics. Yeah. Um, and because everything is interconnected, yeah. you know, we, we, there is, you know, to, to use a cliche, there is no planet B. Yeah. You know, this, this yeah. is what we've got and we are all inter, interconnected and we are an ecosystem and we are small locally based ecosystems and we are part of big global ecosystems. And understanding ecosystem thinking will help us 
tackle um, climate problems. It will help us tackle health problems. It will help um, help make the world less vulnerable to infectious diseases. Um, I'm a big, big fan of permaculture, mm. um, and I think permaculture is is you know, it's one of the systems of regenerative agriculture. There's um, some tropic agriculture. There's a whole lot of different types of looking at our food supply and looking at how we can provide for the absolute basics of human life in a different way to the way we're doing it at the moment. That, to me, offers pathways out of this. Yeah. Um, and part of that is you know, coming back to our local communities. We don't have to reject global connections to also think and act and live locally. Yeah. Um, but we can start localising our food supply. We can start bringing diversity into our food supply. Um, we can reject the, um, the, the, the hyper-industrialised uh, food production techniques that are destroying mm. our soils, that are destroying our health, yeah. that are, you know, meaning that we're pumping chemicals into, yeah. you know, in, in into systems. We don't actually have to be producing food like that. Um, and we don't all have to become vegetarians or vegans to, to be able to do this. You yeah, know, like, yeah. Um, certainly... Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of waste that goes on as well. You oh, know, in, in enormous amounts linked. of waste. Yeah. Um, land is being so poorly used at yeah. the moment. Um, and again, th th it's, this is, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of sharing any deep, dark secrets here. You know, this is something that's been, um, the science is in on this. Yeah. Um, the social science data is in on this. Yeah. Uh, these approaches do work and they can work. And I think they could provide us a way out if we were prepared to embrace them and embracing um, embracing less deadly ways of living in the world mm. involves understanding consumerism is actually not making us happy and we don't need to do it. Yes. So, so really, you know, and it, I'm, I, I don't want to give up my iPhone, yeah. you know. I yeah. like the fact that I'm talking into a nice microphone yeah. at the moment, yeah. you know. I, I, I don't want to give up. A whole lot of technology. Mm -hmm. It's it's not about rejecting the technology we've got. It's about making really informed decisions about you know do I need twenty pairs of shoes yeah. or would five actually be enough? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do I need you know a, a, a new car every five years or you know if I actually looked after it properly and took it to the me mechanic, I can probably get twenty years out of this. And if they were made to last and, for twenty years, and I if think we that's didn't, a big... if we didn't have the built-in obsolescence, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That there's nothing that yeah. angers me more than that. Mm -hmm. And iPhones is a great example yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know that that th things like that would require a massive shift in our business model. But that shift has taken place already. You know, yeah. built-in obsolescence wasn't a thing when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we, we, we have created particular patterns of consumerism, um, certainly in my lifetime. You know, these, these are things that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years. They can be changed back again. Yeah. And they can unpicked. be changed back again, you know, with I, – I don't think it would be that big a shift yeah, to actually yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, um, We can stop paying CEOs – millions and millions of dollars and we can pay people fair way you know 
fair amounts for their their labour. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I don't think we all need to go communist, but I do think we can live in a society where, you know, something like the 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 um, proportion of a CEO's salary to the lowest paid worker in a company used to be something like seven to ten times. Mm. It's now 30, 40, 50, yeah, it's you know, just whatever. That, that's changed really quickly. That's yeah. changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, wow. That can be reined in. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's actually, if we, as a community, as a society, as Victorians, as Australians, as global citizens, decided that it was obscene for any one person to earn a million dollars a year, we could change that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. We, 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 we could decide that those things are not acceptable. If we decided that the business models that the banks work on at the moment is not acceptable, we could change that. We had an opportunity to do that in 2008 yeah. and we didn't. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what it will take for us to do that. But change can happen quickly. Change can said, happen right quickly. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's such a great way, I think, to bookend the conversation because, yeah, that... I feel like we started with optimism and then obviously we had to talk about some pretty dark or worrying things, but then that's an optimistic way to finish as well. Um, I always ask every guest at the end to recommend an artist. Um, oh, it doesn't have to be one. It can be more than one. And it can be anyone. It can be a painter or a musician or a comedian or whatever you like. Do you have any names? I would like people yeah, to get I've got involved a few in. I want to throw. <laughs> yes, please. Um, so classic ones: Archie Roach and the Stiff Gins. Yeah. Um, I what I've, I've focused here on a lot of Indigenous musicians because I just think there's so so much talent yeah. in in Australia at the moment um, that really, you know, has has um, an incredible following, but could have a much broader following. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird when you look at the amount of plays that Archie Roach's biggest songs have on Spotify, mm. it's like that's not enough no. for how well-written no. these stories yeah. are. Yeah. Like it's yeah. weird how yeah. small those numbers yeah. are. Like that's yeah. like, you know, Bob Dylan's mm. like-esque storytelling yeah. on the yeah. same calibre. Yeah, like, absolutely. And, and how universal those stories are. A fraction of the views. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a bit weird. Yeah. So yeah, I, I love Archie Roach yeah. so much. Yeah. There, there's a fantastic clip that my colleague Kath Butler put me on to years and years ago um, that sets, they took the children away to images of the Canadian residential school system. And it's exactly the same story. And it's so powerful because it allows you to to go, yeah, settler colonialism, it's a system that went across the world. And even though individual and local, locally placed stories have their own story it was also a systematic annihilation yeah. of indigenous people yeah. um in in the you know in in the the interests of european expansionism yeah um and that yeah there's so much to be learned from those stories yeah. they're, and and they're beautiful they're, they're so beautiful um some of the the more recent indigenous voices i love thelma plum yeah, um, she's i great. love briggs yeah. I, I would line up to yeah i was about to say i was like would line up to be briggs a sex slave that's probably not appropriate <laughs> but i just think he's one of the most intelligent um amazing 
thinkers that we've got in Australia at the moment. I'd put Nakia Louie up there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, um, Her work is just extraordinary. Yeah. The final episode of, um, oh, God, what was it called? The, the Two Kates. There was a, it was a show made by the ABC um, and it was a send up. It was a, a spoof of morning television. Ah, uh, um, the breakfast get get cracking. Get cracking. Yeah, get cracking. Yeah, so the final episode of the final season of that, where Nakia Louie and Miranda Tapsell basically took over the show, yeah, yeah. is one of the most extraordinary pieces of decolonised television I've ever seen. <laughs> it was. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and every Australian should see that. Yeah. Um, I love Baker Boy. Yeah, I just, me I too. Just adore his energy. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, in terms of books, absolutely anything of Maya Angelou's, mm. um, just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, one of I, there's a quote of hers that I'm using a lot at the moment in when I'm giving papers or presentations. I've got this slide that keeps coming out because it keeps being so relevant. Um, and it's you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Oh, wow. And we're not going to dismantle neoliberal capital, neoliberal capitalism's damage that it's doing to the world by using tools of neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. And this is when we're talking about Bill Gates earlier. Yeah, you totally. know, like yeah. it, it's it would be great if we didn't have to use him as yeah, yeah, the yeah. saviour, but yeah. that's the best we've got. For now. But wow, can we start imagining exactly. some other, can, can we start thinking outside the square, outside yeah. the paradigm? Yeah. And writers like Naomi Klein are yeah. doing that beautifully. Yeah, you know, yeah, with, yeah. With, she's with, so amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, you know, she's got the pathways forward for yeah. us yeah. if we will just read them and understand them and follow them. Yeah. Um, somebody else who I think has got so many pathways forward for us in Australia and around the world is Tyson Yunker Porter. He's absolutely extraordinary book sand talk, um, which I'm just going to grab here and wave yeah. about, even though it's you know a podcast and nobody can see it. Um, it's a beautiful but we'll put cover the link there. up. It's uh, have a feel of it. It's yeah. it's all embossed and gorgeous. Yeah. Um, it's here we are having a very tactile moment, um, <laughs> and yeah, it it's it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I would suggest you read it and then do a podcast just on that. Yeah. Um, I would love to see you interview Tyson. He's, yeah. he's an extraordinary interview. The, um, the quote on the back is amazing. Um, radical I, radical ideas bursting with reason. Yeah. That's a great yeah. quote. Yeah. Um, he basically doesn't try to understand Indigenous thinking through a Western lens. He explains Western thinking through an Indigenous lens. Oh, cool. It's so exciting. It's really cool. It's like I there were bits of it when I was reading it that I'm just jiggling up yeah, and down yeah. with, with excitement in it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It's 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 really groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um thank you for being patient with me with all of these different no, things I'm putting forward. All. This is, um, this is I'm, great. I'm gonna finish off by putting in a plug for my son's short film Blackwood. So my son, Kalu Oji, is a filmmaker, um, an African-Australian uh, filmmaker who is his, – his mission in his artistic practice is to create wholesome representations of African-Australian experiences um, in, 
in all of his his various art forms that he's working with. Um, but Blackwood was uh, he studied film at, at VCA, graduated in two thousand and eighteen, and Blackwood was his um, his graduate film. Um, and it did really well on the International Film Festival circuit and is available now on Quelly, which is sort of like a black Netflix. It's a streaming service. Um, so I'll give you the link for that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, I really a, want to watch it. Yeah, it's a little 12-minute yeah. film and it's really sweet um, yeah. about a mother and son. And, yeah, so that's my last recommendation. That's such that a great recommendation. I feel like you saved the best till last. That's, a, that's yeah, that's really exciting. Um Quelly, to watch that. Yep. K-W-E-L-I. Cool. Yep. Sweet. That's exciting. I'm going to watch that. Thank you so much, Debbie, for you talking are... to me. Thank I really you appreciate so it. much that was for having me here. It's this, just been awesome. Yeah. This podcast's all about the idea is that I'm meant to learn things through doing these conversations, and I just learned so much just then. <laughs> so, yeah, it's brilliant. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you.